Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, Senate President Stuart Adams' Senate Bill 211, titled Generational Water Infrastructure Amendment, seeks to secure a water supply for decades to come. Forms a new council composed of leadership of the state's largest and biggest water districts that will figure out Utah's water needs for the next 50 to 75 years. That's just one of the bills being run in this session of the Utah legislature dealing with water. We're going to talk about water policy as it's being debated and acted upon at the Utah legislature. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Representative Joel Briscoe, a Democrat from Salt Lake City. Right now, we bring in uh, Salt Lake Tribune water and land use reporter Leah Larson. Leah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always nice to talk to you. Uh, so, uh, let's, a bunch of stuff I want to talk about. You've been covering all of this, including uh, Lake Powell and uh, Great Salt Lake. But uh, this is an interesting bill. Um, Senate President Stuart Adams, as you note in your story, high likelihood of passage given his uh, position in the Senate. Uh, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about uh, SB 211. What would this do? Yeah, so I think there's been a lot of speculation about this bill ever since the file was opened. You know, it's called Generational Water Infrastructure Amendments. So there was a lot of speculation. Is this about the Lake Powell Pipeline? Is this about Bear River development, a dam on the Bear River? Um, But we finally got to see the text of the bill late last week. And what it does is it creates this Water District Water Development Council, which is basically comprised of the leadership of the four largest water districts in the state. And then it also creates a water agent. And it seems like the main the main task for this water agent is going to be negotiating with other states to find a, another water supply for Utah. So that in itself, I don't know, you might describe that as quixotic. Uh, other other states are going to want their water, aren't they? Oh, for sure. I, you know, the New York Times last year did this big investigation about how states across the country are, are facing shortages in their aquifers. Um, there's just not a lot of water to go around in the nation. Um, so, yeah, there's also been a lot of speculation since this bill text came out. Uh, where where exactly are we going to go for more water? There's, you know, infa- infamously not a lot of water in the Colorado River system. So that doesn't seem like it would work. So, so where are we going to go exactly? There's even been some studies out of BYU about building a pipeline to the Pacific Ocean, which was discussed a lot last year and the year before, and just how enormously expensive that would be. It just seems totally impractical. So wh- where where are they going to go? What states are we going to go to to get this water? Well, um, the bill just had its first hearing right before we got on this call in committee, and President Adams was um, kind of, he shed a little more light on what his plan is. And what he was talking a lot about was, building desalinization plants in California so that all those farms and cities out there can use that desalinated ocean water, and that would free up Colorado River water for Utah to use. So that seems to be the aim of this bill. But at the same time, there is a lot of concern from water watchdogs that um, this, this development council, this water district water development council with the four largest water districts, so they're not going to be subject to the Open Public Meetings Act, so they don't have to keep minutes, they don't have to give notice that they're going to meet, they don't have to but invite the public in to, to watch their meetings, they can meet in secret. Um, so there is concern that they're also going to be strategizing for Bear River development and, and the White Powell Pipeline. So a lot of concern there as well. Uh, yeah, without the Open Meetings uh, protections, as some would see it. Um I want to I want to talk a little bit about desalinization. Um, 
is what's the latest on that? Is is that cost effective? <laughs> it is enormously expensive and, and requires a lot of energy. So, um, yeah, I don't think that, that we don't have any large scale desalinization plants in the United States. Um, but Stuart Adams was pointing to this article written by a real estate developer in the Nevada Independent as an op-ed, um, just saying, like, you know, conservation is not the only way we, we're also going to need desalinization. So he was kind of leaving, leaning heavily on that article in his um, committee hearing that, that this is necessary. And, you know, they were talking a lot about how, you know, in decades past, there were these visionaries who built all these large water projects in Utah, and that's why we have the growth that we have today, and we wouldn't be here without them. But at the same time, I think, you know, someone who's skeptical about this bill could maybe argue that by building these big water projects, all these dams and reservoirs, especially like the bigger ones, it may have created this art of, like, this, this sense of abundance where abundance didn't actually exist. Um, so, yep. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um... So you mentioned uh, Dam of the Bear River, uh, Lake Powell. Uh, I, I'm sure that for those opponents of such projects, there's a fear that uh, maybe this action by President Adams is, is you know, we have no evidence that it's heading that way, but I'm sure there are fears that uh, maybe that's the first step. Yeah, I think there is a lot of fear out there, um, especially just because, you know, this water agent, this this development council, they, they get to meet and negotiate in secret. Um, so we don't really know what they're going to do, what they're going to strategize. And like on the one hand, you can understand that talking about water is just really controversial, especially in the West. And so you'd want some kind of protection, some, some, so you can talk freely about this, especially with other states. And if you're negotiating like real estate purchase or water right purchase, um, those are sensitive conversations and you don't want, you know, to, someone to, to get like tipped off on that and then come in and like blow up your deal right but at the same time we have government bodies and you know city councils county councils state state agencies where um they are required to meet uh, like have open public meetings but there's a mechanism in place where they can talk about these kinds of deals and closed session and closed meetings so um i think that's a lot of concern with with water watchdogs following this but um what lawmakers were saying in committee today is, you know, they, they need these, these um, behind-closed-door meetings so they can negotiate these sensitive issues, and then before anything's actually done, it will be debated, like, amongst lawmakers in a, in a public process. So, uh, One of the dreams, is, you know, at this point it has been a, a dream, kind of a far-fetched dream, uh, pipelines. You mentioned the one to the Pacific Ocean, uh, there's Lake Powell pipeline. There's even been a thought of pipelines to like what the Mississippi River, Missouri River. Um, obvious problems with that. Uh, I guess there are some advantages. You you where water's abundant, you could uh, you could bring water to where water's scarce. Yeah, I think you know that that is an idea that's been floated around for a few years now. Um, like I said, BYU some professors penciled that out and tried to estimate the cost. Just like to the Pacific Ocean, the ongoing maintenance and electricity bills would be around $300 million a year. So that's a lot of money. Um, so it seems like, though, this is less of a pipeline bill and more of a we will pay California to build desalinization uh, plants so then we can keep our Colorado River water. That seems to be 
the focus of this, even though it's not clearly articulated in the bill text, that seems to be the idea behind it. Mm, interesting. Uh, tell me about this uh, Colorado River Authority of Utah. This this was established somewhat recently. As, uh, President Adams was involved in this as well, I believe. Yes, that was also a bill he sponsored. And um, this was just kind of like to, to make sure Utah had a voice in all these Colorado river debates that are really heating up lately. Um but like this Water Development Council, they are the, the Colorado River Authority is also not subject to open and public meetings law and procurement. So there are some parallels there. But um, lawmakers have had a lot of great things to say about the Colorado River Authority and committee today. So they seem to like it. They seem to like this, this way of doing things. So um, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, you talked with someone with the Great Basin Water Network. Uh, they're not supporting this bill, it sounds like. No, they're not. I mean, I think this is this is a pretty polarizing on party lines. Um, you know, those more liberal-leaning are really opposed to this and the lack of transparency. Those on more in the conservative aisle seem to be supportive of it. However, um, there was someone from uh, the Bear River Canal Company who is a little concerned that the, the Water Development Council is comprised entirely of the four largest water districts. They hope to have maybe a, a voice from rural Utah. Uh, so which are those districts? Those concentrated around the Wasatch Front, is it? Uh, mostly the Wasatch Front, but also Washington County, down mm-hmm. the St. George area. They're obviously um, really facing some water shortage issues and some uncertainty whether this Lake Powell pipeline will ever be built. Um, given the state of Lake Powell, um, doesn't really have a lot of water to spare at the moment. Um, but the other three are, besides Washington County, it would be Weber Basin Water, Central Utah, um, and Jordan Valley River or Jordan Valley. Yeah. Yeah. So this would uh, this would not include the the uh, Cache Valley Conservative District. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So mm-hmm. um, I think some of those smaller water districts are just hoping that at least they can have somebody representing more rural voices on this council. Uh, I want to head toward another one of your stories, Leah. Um, by the way, we're talking with Leah Larson, water and land use reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune, uh, talking about uh, bills relating to water at the Utah legislature and related topics. Um, so before we get to um, sentiment, uh, at least among some legislators, to uh, further regulate mineral companies on the Great Salt Lake. I want to uh, maybe get state of play at the the Great Salt Lake um, by going to your story. The headline is: uh, Can Utah restore the Great Salt Lake in time for the twenty thirty four Olympics? Um, well, let me just ask you that question. What what did you the experts you talked to say? Is how how's the Great Salt Lake going to be uh, for the twenty thirty four Olympics in Salt Lake? Yeah, I mean it, it's kind of interesting. This came up. Last month, when the Great Salt Lake Strike Team presented their latest report, they kind of floated this as an idea, like maybe a, a possible goal, um, because actually the last time the Great Salt Lake was in its healthy range um, was 2002, which was the last time we hosted the Olympics. And if you think about it, the world is going to be descending upon upon Utah in 2034. Um, and as they fly into the Salt Lake Airport, one of the first things they see is going to be the Great Salt Lake. And what is it going to look like? It's just kind of interesting to think about. Um, but, it, I mean, it is going to be a heavy lift to refill this lake in 10 years. So um, 
I think it just depends on our resolve and if, if we are willing to conserve and do, do the difficult steps that it takes to get there that soon. Uh, in your story, you, uh, you put some numbers on this. Uh, so the, consider the minimum healthy level for the lake is considered uh, 4,191 feet, 98 feet above uh, sea level, right? We're, we're uh, what are we, about five feet below that at this point? Yes, about I think there's five to eight feet below that because if you if you recall, there's a causeway dividing the the lake essentially in half, and they've raised a berm that allows water to flow from south to north. Um, they raised the berm so that the south um, uh, they could stave off some of the rising salinity that was infiltrating from the north, and so the south the south arm is a little bit higher than the north arm. And so, uh, under the highly aggressive uh, plan, under the the strike forces report. Um, that would mean cutting human water consumption, the Great Salt Lake watershed, from agriculture, homes, businesses, industry by 1.3 million acre feet a year in dry years, 705,000 acre feet in normal water years. So uh, you point out an acre foot is about enough water to supply two households annually. Uh, you know, a lot of water. A lot of water. Um, I mean, it, I think it's about as much as agriculture consumes in a single year. So just, yeah, wrap your head around that. That's a lot of water to come up with. Um, so agriculture is, I'm not, I can't remember what the percentage is. It's 40% or something, if you do the pie chart. Agriculture uses about 60%, 60 percent of the water oh, in yeah. the Great Salt Lake watershed that would otherwise flow to the lake if humans weren't here. Yeah. Um, is there anything this year the legislature dealing with agriculture? Because it, it, in your story about the mineral companies, they use about 7%, and that's where the legislature seems to be focusing right now. Yeah, so I think that what they're trying to do is just kind of finesse existing policy. There's the, the water agriculture water optimization program in place that helps farmers cover the cost of upgrading um, their irrigation and then, in turn, the conserved water, instead of being used to grow more crops or irrigate additional acreage, is supposed to be kind of banked, and, and, and they can sell it to the state to get it to the Great Salt Lake, or they can sell it to some other public interest. So I think they're just trying to finesse that a little more, as well as install, like, telemetry and measuring devices in the watershed so they, we can measure the water and make sure we're, that the water that we, we are conserving in, say, Cache Valley but we want it to get to the Great Salt Lake. Like, where is it in real time? Is it making there, it there or somebody downstream just diverting it away? So I think um, we're seeing a lot of uh, legislation there to kind of finesse that and, and make sure the water that we're conserving is doing what we want it to do. Well, let's take a brief break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about the mineral companies, um, what's happening in the legislature there. I also want to talk about Lake Powell. You had a story recently about Lake Powell. Great water year last year, but, uh, you know, what, what's happening there and what might may likely happen in the future. We're talking about water, especially as it relates to the Utah legislature this session. And right now we're talking with uh, Salt Lake Tribune water and land use reporter Leah Larson. Later in the program, Representative Joel Briscoe, Democrat from Salt Lake City, will join us. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about water. Of course, very important. Uh, Utah, I think the second driest state in the nation, uh, next to Nevada. 
And uh, though we had a great water winter last winter, this one's shaping up to be pretty good. Um, it's it still got a lot of water problems. Um, and we're talking about water policy as it's being debated and acted upon at the Utah legislature and related topics. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Representative Joel Briscoe, Democrat from Salt Lake City. Now, right now we're talking with Salt Lake Tribune water and land use reporter Leah Larson. Um, so what if you tell us about this uh, story, Leah Larson, mi- the headline, Mineral Companies Use 7% of Great Salt Lake's Water. Uh, here's how a bill would change their business. Um, wh- what's being proposed? Um, well, I think the concern here is that, you know, we, we just discussed agriculture and all the money being spent to reform agriculture and save agriculture and buy water or lease water from agriculture. Um but once it goes to the Great Salt Lake, the mineral companies that operate on the lake kind of have a free-for-all currently where they can divert as much as they want as long as their canals can reach the brine. Um, so, you know, the state's going to pay all this money to lose water from farmers, but there's nothing to stop a mineral company from siphoning it away. So this is kind of trying to, to stop that and, and kind of, you know, like even if the, if the water is high enough for you to divert away mineral company, you can't necessarily do that if the state just paid money to keep it in that lake. Um, especially because mineral rights companies actually are some of the most junior water right holders, the lowest on the priority list in times of shortage. But if it's in the lake, like I said, they can just take it. So this is trying to put some side rails on that. Uh, are there concerns about damaging their business? Absolutely. Um the company that seems to be the most concerned is, is Compass Mineral. They operate out of Ogden, and they are the largest mineral company in the lake. And, and what they do is they evaporate lake water in these shallow ponds and extract potash, which is used in organic fertilizers. Um, but they were trying to uh, ramp up their business model and begin extracting lithium, and they were releasing all these like splashy news releases about signing deals with Ford Motor Company and all these other companies about all this lithium they were going to supply them, even though they had no contracts or agreements in place with the state to even harvest lithium and really stoked lawmakers' ire. Um, So they kind of signaled last year that this was coming. And so uh, Compass has has dropped its lithium plans, essentially totally mothballed that idea. Um, So... They're not only worried it's going to affect their business, it seems like it already is affecting their business. A uh, somewhat related story, um, there, there, there has been an effort to regrow Utah's uh, salt flats, but latest science, I guess, uh, shows that may have backfired. Could you tell us briefly about that? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is kind of fascinating, and it came up in a legislative committee earlier this year. Um, but, yeah, so, so there's been concern about the salt flats. They've been receding. Um, they used to cover about 50 square miles, and now they're down to about 35 square miles, so quite a dramatic reduction in just, like, the last few decades. So the racing community that loves to, to you know, drive on these super flat salts and, like, break the sound barrier, um, they're, they're super concerned about this. So they've been lobbying pretty hard for the federal government because the Bureau of Land Management owns and manages the salt flats and also the state government. They've been lobbying them pretty hard to um, to fund a solution. And in their mind, the solution was um, there's there's another potash company out there, essentially, that is um, not mining the Great Salt Lake, but mining the groundwater in the area. And, you know, there's speculation. This is what's causing these salt flats to decline. So rather than disrupt this industry and their business, they wanted to... Uh, 
get them to essentially, when they stop pumping groundwater in the, the winter, to mix all their waste salts that they don't need, the non-potash salts, mix that with water and then reflood the salt flat um, using groundwater. And they thought, you know, this will regrow the crust. But it seems actually what is causing the salt flat to shrink is all the groundwater pumping, not just from industry, um, just, you know, in general. Um, all the groundwater pumping is causing the aquifer to drop and it's pulling water away from the salt flats and that that's what's causing them to shrink. So even this process where they're flooding the salt flats in the winter with water, they call it lay down. Even this process is contributing to that because they're, they're pumping the groundwater to do it. So it's just kind of interesting that this, this thing that we thought was a solution may have backfired on us. Yeah. Um, We'll talk about uh, just another two or three bills uh, at the legislature. Uh, you had a story uh, a week or two ago with a review of water bills. Um, this, um, let's see. Um, there's a bill apparently that would... Um, oh, it's an update, I think, here. Uh, Senator Hinkins, Senate Bill 125... Um, back in uh, 2022, you write, uh, lawmakers uh, required every secondary water connection in Utah to have a meter by 2030. Uh, what would Senator Hinkins' bill do? Is that tweaking that? Yeah, so I'm trying to remember what the, the limit was. They, they, essentially, they wanted to exempt smaller uh, water providers because this is just it's like just a huge burden to have to go retroactively slap a secondary water meter on, on residential connections. Um, so it was going to exempt some of them. Um, I don't remember what the threshold was, but there was concern because a lot of them were in the Great Salt Lake Basin. And it's like, why would we exempt people that are contributing to to this problem? Um, but it sounds like they've been negotiating with him, um, and he's he's going to 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 ex- exempt the Great Salt Lake Basin from this. So it would apply to other water districts that aren't in the Great Salt Lake Basin. So it sounds like they're still working on that behind the scenes. Are there uh, any other bills you'd like to mention that uh, you've been following relating to water? Um, well, I think Representative Casey Snyder has one that's making a pretty big splash. I believe it's House Bill 280. And what that would do would, is um, look at water infrastructure projects kind of the way we look at highway projects, where Utah Department of Transportation makes like 30-year timelines for like where it's going to build a highway and how it's going to fund it and what it's going to prioritize um, his bill would do that to, to water infrastructure projects. Um, but that has raised some concerns, especially among smaller communities, because they just don't have the resources and like staff to do that kind of long-term planning. They don't really know what things are going to look like 30 years out. Um, so, so they're a little worried that, you know, like bigger, bigger districts, bigger, bigger water users might get prioritized above them. So there's that being reformed behind the scenes as well. And it'll be interesting to see what tweaks are made to that one. Just have uh, three or four minutes left. I wanted to uh, go to your story on Lake Powell. This is a recent story. Uh, go to Southern Utah. Uh, so, as you point out in your story, um, you know, last year was a very wet year that uh, did help um, from the point of view of those who want a, a uh, you know, a full or full or Lake Powell. There's some who don't, um, but historically, still uh, pretty low. I think. Yeah, even with that colossal runoff that we got last spring, um, Lake Powell and Lake Mead never really reached more than one-third full. Um, so that just tells you, like, 
the size of the problem. And even now, like our snowpack's looking about normal for this time of year. Um, so that, you know, that kind of runoff is certainly not going to fill these reservoirs. In fact, there's been some research out of Utah State that's found that Lake, P- Lake Mead and Lake Powell probably never reach more than half full ever again. Uh, so the Bureau of Reclamation, you write in your story, uh, opted to store m- much of that rec- record-breaking runoff. So that means they they didn't send any or they're not sending as much down to Lake Mead? Yeah, not as much. I mean, there was there were calls um, last year that, that, you know, you should let's fill Lake Mead first because that's where all of Lake Powell's water is destined to reach anyway. You know, Lake Powell is just kind of holding water to release to Lake Mead. There, there's really no users in between. Um, so why not just fill that first and let Glen Canyon continue to emerge and recover? Um, but what the Bureau is doing, and, it, you know, they're doing this because they're mandated by Congress to do this, is they're, they're prioritizing that hydropower production. So they did hold a lot of that water back in Lake Powell to, to get it up to, it needs like a better buffer, I suppose, before it hits that power pool where it can't generate hydro, hydropower anymore. And that seems to be the, what will be their priority in the next few years until they come up with the bigger plan of what are we going to do after 2027 for, for decades to come. Uh, yeah, so um, I guess the, cult, the the current policy till the end of 2026, you mentioned 2027. What's happening then? So that's when they they have to come up with like their, their long-term plan for Lake Powell and Lake Mead and negotiate with all the states that rely on the Colorado River about how, how are we going to manage this river moving forward, which is producing far less weather, water than we had projected back when we made all these compacts and agreements and lawsuits and settled on the law of the river that exists today, that clearly it's not working. Um, climate change means there's going to be less, even less water in the future. So they are currently trying to come up with their plan post-2027 for at least the next three decades. So th- this uh, refilling, at least partial refilling of Lake Powell, is not good news for some folks. For example, you talked with a representative from Glen Canyon Institute. As you write, that's a nonprofit that considers creation of Lake Powell an environmental mistake. And uh, th- this, um, this Balkan is his name. I can't remember his first name. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he went out, took some photos of, of when it was at uh, you know incredibly low level, which is a great thing for him, right, and for that institute. Yeah, I mean, um, we're seeing things that haven't been seen in a generation um, coming out of the water. Just, you know, these natural features, it's, these canyons, they're kind of like an oasis in the desert with all these this beautiful native plant regrowth and all these wildlife species that are re-inhabiting it. Um, it's kind of amazing to see. Um, but then, you know, it, when the water came up, like I think it was 50 feet in the spring, and to see them reflood, you can tell that there's just kind of a sense of mourning all over again <laughs> from when the canyon was first dammed in the 50s and 60s and flooded. Um, a lot of mourning going on that Glen Canyon was lost, and then this new generation has got to see it emerge um, and explore this place. And now it's flooded again, so I think there's, you know, they're feeling that sense of loss all over again. So their ultimate goal, I think, uh, they want to, let's abandon Lake Powell, uh, make Glen Canyon National Park. Is that what they want? Yeah, that's what Eric Balkin wants. Yeah, um, I think he'd like to see Glen Canyon Dam bypassed and to let Glen Canyon permanently recover. 
um, and let its ecosystem rebound. And just since Lake Powell and Lake Mead are probably never going to reach half full ever again, might as well store all that water in Lake Mead where the end users are. So I think that is his argument. However, there are a lot of people who love Lake Powell who have like lots of fond memories. They've invested a lot of money in houseboats and, um, that, you know, they don't want to see Lake Powell go away. And yeah, boaters are, are mentioning that tourism, as you write in the, uh, your story, um, the reservoir generated $410 million economic windfall for the surrounding gateway communities. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it is, this reservoir is hugely important for these gateway communities because um, while there are national parks already surrounding Glen Canyon and Lake Powell, like um, Canyonlands National Park, um, the Grand Canyon, of course, um, Lake Powell gets a lot more visitors. I mean, Glen, uh, Grand Canyon gets usually gets a, a few more than uh, Lake Powell does, but Lake Powell does more than like Canyonlands, Bears Ears, um, Escalante National Staircase combined. So, um, and I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. Like this, this um, being a national recreation area instead of a national park with a big reservoir to go boating in just draws a lot more people than a national park does, and the end result is a lot more economic windfall. Well, very interesting. Um... And uh, we appreciate you uh, coming on. Tell us about the, this full range of stories that illustrates what Lee is up to. A uh, lot of water and uh, land use uh, reporting, and I'm sure more to come as we uh, head through this legislative session. We've been talking with Salt Lake Tribune water and land use reporter Leah Larson. Uh, Leah, thanks so much. Yes, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Um, and uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with Representative Gerald Briscoe, Democrat from Salt Lake City. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about water policies that's being debated and acted upon the Utah legislature. And uh, right now we bring in Representative Joel Briscoe, Democrat from Salt Lake City. Representative Briscoe, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me on. We uh, talked about energy policy, I think it was last week, so water policy uh, today. Um, I want to ask you first, Representative Briscoe, about uh, Senator Adams' bill. I don't know how familiar you are with this. It's just the details are just coming out. Senate Bill 211 titled Generational Water Infrastructure Amendments. One thing, is, uh, according to close reading of the bill, um, seems to be, uh, uh, you know, maybe a search for water outside of the state. You know, I went knowing I was going to be on and not wanting to, um, you know, just flap my lips. I went through all 40-plus pages last night, um, and I agree. It seems that its primary intent is to create a structure within the state whose sole purpose is to try and find water outside Utah to bring into into Utah. Um, so do you think that's a good idea? I think we ought to be pursuing that? No, in a word. Um, my son lives in Oregon, and when I go to visit him a few times a year, I get updates on um, stuff happening in their uh, state of the world. Um, I, I've got friends who um, work in water in Utah a few years ago, suggested some books to me in the early 1960s when President Kennedy was in office. His secretary of the interior was in Arizona. Um, the number, the oldest senator in the United States, longest serving senator was in Arizona. They had enormous power. 
and they wanted to bring water down from the Columbia River, but the Democrats were in control, and Senator Scoop Jackson was in charge of the committee on the interior, and he said, you're not getting any water from the Columbia. Um, we're just not going to send it down to Arizona. And it didn't happen. The Arizona project was water was created, but they didn't get the 225, 230,000 acre feet they thought they were going to get. This, every time we have a really, really serious water problem, people go, well, let's just ship water around. So I find it interesting that they think that there's a state that's going to sell us some of their water. Um, I, I find it interesting they think that the Missouri or the Mississippi Basin or the snake, which flows into the Columbia. Um, I find it interesting that someone believes that something can happen that they would willingly give up some of their water or that they would allow it to be purchased or that they think that this could have success. Uh, another concern is the, uh, appears to uh, set up this authority, um, to you know, bypass the Open Meetings uh, Act, uh, there's s- some concerns that uh, uh, you know. Apart from out of state, uh, there are some regions in Utah that are nervous about <laughs> Wasatch Front coming for their water. Yeah, um, you know there are people in the West Desert who fought off um, Clark County, Las Vegas, and years fighting them, wanting to come and drill. A- an enormous number of wells and piped water to Las Vegas. Um, now Iron County, Cedar City, wants to do the same. It's just someone within Utah instead of outside Utah. I'm concerned about, um, you know, Utah Open Public Meetings Act law allows you to close meetings for the purpose, for several purposes, but to completely, let me link two things together. The group that would create the state water agent who would lead the Water District Water Development Council would be the Washington County Water Conservancy District, the Weber Basin Water Conservancy District, Jordan Valley, and Central Utah. Um, the, pe- the people who run those agencies are appointed. They're not elected. I like the fact that I can vote people in and out of office based upon their performance and they're, they're, they're public about what their goals are. I can vote for them or against them. And once they're in office, they can be held accountable. Um, it, take, it would take, it would, you would have to go through several different layers of government to hold someone accountable, um, the vote for the voters to hold someone accountable for this, and then to completely exclude them from open public meetings that uh, is a bridge too far for me. Um. So, uh, what do we do then? Uh, we don't bring water in from out uh, outside. Um, wh- what I, I is it? I don't. I don't think there is water. Uh, a couple of years ago, the Mississippi River was so low that they had to, they there were places where they couldn't fill the barges as full. They've had some problems on the Columbia. I think politically, I don't know why anyone will give us water. Uh, the, the Great Salt Lake report that Brian Steed and his group presented last month suggested we move up our water conservation targets for what we think we can obtain in Utah in 2060, that we move them up 20 years to 2040. I think we ought to talk about moving them up to 2035. Um, 
a lot of the things the legislature has voted for to put into place the last two or three years are just starting to happen. It's going to take two or three years to see their effect. But I don't think the average Utah, except for maybe starting till two years ago, um, if you're running a business or something else, you're probably seeing some effect of the water shortages. I don't think the average person putting water on their yard has until maybe very, very recently. I mean, down in Nevada, they have said you can't have grass in the front lawn. You can have 30% of your backyard and grass, and they've limited the size of pools in the backyard. Now, they're, they get 90% of their water from Colorado River. We get 35 40%. So we're in better shape in that regard. But I don't think we've touched the amount we could obtain by doing serious conservation measures. Uh, tell me more about the serious conservation measures. What what would it take? What it would look like for you and me? A, a number uh, of states in the Colorado River Basin have upgraded the efficiency of their plumbing fixtures. Um, we have more to go there. Um, we could. Um, we've got a lot of money invested into agricultural water optimization, which I, we're starting to see early reports from. Some of them are promising. Um, I I got a study, a water audit study done of the grass on the Capitol Hill that was done at Utah State University in conjunction with um, Salt Lake City uh, Public Utilities about four or five years ago. And they said if they fixed a few irrigation issues with pipes and changed the way they water in July and August, that we could save up to 35% of the water we put on Capitol Hill without taking out a square foot of grass, of saw. So I think, you know, our target goals are modest for water conservation. I don't think we've, I think we could go further on water conservation. We could get more efficient in our plumbing fixtures. Um, those are two things that come to mind immediately. Um, great water year last year, shaping up to be pretty good this year. Do you, yep. do you think that's... Do you think that causes us to drop our guard? I, I'm afraid it might. Um, the water research people, the climate scientists at USU, went to a conference last May. They, I, they said they expected a wet cycle for two or three years. That appears to be true. Um, there's another problem that we haven't overcome. We have finger pointing. Well, I'll stop. I'll, I'll tear out some of my grass and go uh, water-efficient plants when the farmers stop planting alfalfa. Um we're not going to save the Great Salt Lake by everyone assisting that someone else to their job, but I don't have to sacrifice. Everyone has to make a sacrifice. Everyone has to use water more sparingly and more smartly if we're going to save the Great Salt Lake. Uh, do you think, uh, uh, I guess, are you hopeful? you think we have it in us to do that? I do. Um, if, I do. If, if we have if we have spirited and principled leadership, um, I, I wonder, uh, we've done difficult things in the past. We've done really hard things. Um, the fact that we're, we've got this booming economy and this very arid state um, that a lot of people want to come and live in because of its beauty and its opportunity shows that, you know, when we plan ahead for the right things, we can do great stuff. I think we can. Um, I, I think we have to be realistic and we also have to be determined and, um, 
be patient and persistent. Uh, I wanted to ask you a, a specific question. I asked uh, Commissioner Steed this when he had on last week. Um, do we need to codify a target level for the Great Salt Lake? Uh, Senator Bluen had a, had a bill that failed, what was it, last year? You know, um, I understood where Senator Bluen was coming from, and I think he took some uh, slings and arrows that were not they were not deserved. Um, what I heard from the executive summary of um, the report that Brian Steed and his group proposed was that a healthy level was somewhere between uh, 4,198 and 42. In, in, in essence, he said the same thing that Senator Bluen said, um, but he couched it with a few more words and just gave a range. But the bottom of his range was 4,198. The advantage of the Great Salt Lake is we don't have to put a meter on it. All we have to do is measure it. What we're struggling with right now is knowing, and I've heard Representative Snyder and uh, Joel Ferry at DNR and others say this in public meetings, it's not private information. Um, people, the public go, okay, so this city is giving incentives to rip your strip, and they, this, these group of farms are using are, are, using water more efficiently and over here they're using drip irrigation and you've done this thing with businesses over here is the water getting to the lake because of that and we don't know um usu is um i think we're going to give an appropriation this year i hope we're giving an appropriation to usu water research labs and they're going to come back and say here's the instrumentation we need to put in the canals and the rivers and the streams at various points flowing into the Great Salt Lake so that we can have a handle on where the water's coming from, where it's going, so that we can have better data. We can't make really good decisions. You can't make something this complex. You can't just have, you can't put your finger in the air, see which way is the wind blowing in order to make um, detailed decisions about where and what to do and whether we're being successful. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Representative Joel Briscoe, Democrat from Salt Lake City. Uh, Representative Briscoe, I noticed you introduced uh, House Bill 42. What what would this do? House Bill 42. Do you have the title right in front? Oh, yeah. yeah. The, uh, this, fixes, this fixes a problem we discussed in legislative water development. Uh, state law requires the um, water engineer. If someone says shows proof of having a, a water share and a water right, and they go, well, I want to divert this many, this much water out of this stream or, or, or drill a well and, and set up this irrigation system. Um, the state water engineer advertises two weeks in a row in a newspaper in the county or in the area in which the water is going to be diverted. The purpose of this is simply so that people who follow this, who follow water, can look in their paper and go, oh, I wonder what's up with that and call and find out what's happening. What they've been doing for years is keeping physical copies of the newspaper. If someone comes back and says, you know, we think you didn't follow process and didn't advertise in the right newspaper for two weeks in a row, uh, they keep a physical copy of those papers. Um, that, as, uh, House Bill 42 will require them to continue to advertise in local papers um, but will allow them to keep electronic copies of their advertisements. Um, the original proposal from the water engineer was that they re remove the requirement that they advertise in local newspapers and let them put the notice out electronically. But some r rural legislators, and I completely agreed with them, 
said not everyone not everyone who has an interest in water gets everything electronically. Um, some people still like to open the newspaper, and that's their principal means of getting information. And we would be excluding a large group of people who would like to know what's happening in water in their community if we said the only way you can get it is electronically. So it's a compromise. We'll keep advertising in print papers. They will put it out electronically for some. But some people will still be able to pick up their their weekly newspaper and say, oh, that's what's going on in water. But it will make the water engineer more efficient, save some time and money by allowing them to keep their uh, documentation in, in electronic means. About uh, four or five minutes, three or four minutes uh, left, um, Representative Briscoe. I just want to maybe move to a little more open-ended. Uh, sure. Are there are there bills that you're especially keeping your eye on, either you know uh, uh, negatively or positively? That you'd like to tell us about. Um, Representative, uh, Representative Kyle um, got past the um, House a couple of bills that give me pause that would change the method for approving um, tax increases in Utah. It would require a 60% threshold. States like Colorado have um, have had laws in effect a 60% threshold for tax increases in effect for some time. And it's caused them significant difficulty in funding public education, higher education, and other public services. Um, that concerns me. Uh, he would have a, put a resolution on the ballot for to voters to approve. And um, I don't think that's a productive path for us to go down, giving a significant growing state. I think there, I think our frugality as a state. Um, keeps uh, tax keeps um, taxes in check, but when you have a lot of kids and you have a lot of people moving in and you have a lot of growth, there's a lot of infrastructure to be built. I'm not and I, you know, I'll I'll tout one of my bills. Um, I've got a bill file open. I've got my intern with me. The school transit. What number is that? That is HB. Salt Lake City is in for HB 400. Salt Lake City for two, 473. HB 473. Um, for two years, Salt Lake City School District has provided transit passes for all their K-12 students and all their staff. Um, they report a lot of positives. They report some increased attendance in some schools. They report increased parent attendance to back-to-school nights and parent-teacher conferences. And uh, 473 would set up a fund where other communities on the Wasatch Front that are served by the Utah Transit Authority could apply for uh, money to help them provide transit passes to their students and staff as well. Mm. Um Representative Briscoe, I want to ask you about the atmosphere there at the legislature. It's, it, it seems, you know, um, Utah seems, uh, Republicans and Democrats seem to work well together. Of course, uh, Republicans have big majorities. Um, this session, with the passage of some pretty controversial bills, DEI and transgender, uh, I've, I've seen emotion from some of the Democratic leaders. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if that's frayed relationships, or are, are we okay with the two parties there? I'm thinking how to respond. Um, 
it's not been easy. I, I, I like my Republican colleagues as individuals. I, I think that we talk about how different Utah is, but Utah doesn't seem to be much different to me than um, legislation that has received an awful lot of attention nationwide, like passed in Texas or like passed in Florida. Um, when the governor goes down where Utah, we patted ourselves on the back, and I thought appropriately with the Utah Compact years ago when Joe Arpaio, the sheriff in Arizona, was telling his officers anyone who looked like they might be an illegal immigrant, they could stop, which many people interpreted as if you're brown, you know, you could be pulled over. We took a different tack in Utah, but when the governor of Utah says he supports the governor in Texas, um, and putting up and, uh, razor wire barriers and floating barriers in the water and telling the federal government that we don't care that the Constitution says you support, you make immigration policy, we're going to do our own. It makes me wonder whether we still have a commitment to the Utah Compact. Um, that doesn't, we talk a lot about the Utah way, but right now it seems like the Texas way and the uh, Florida way. And I don't think that a majority of Utahns, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's what a majority of Utahns want to support. Do we want a good, solid, I'm not calling for an open border and anyone walks in. I think we need to fix, I think Congress is neglectful and also representative of deep divisions in our country. Um, Senator, President Obama, President Bush, um, have tried and Congress bought, and I don't think they're doing their responsibility to make a, a sound immigration policy. But letting people drown in the Rio Grande is not is also not a sound anti-immigration policy. We've been talking with Representative Gerald Briscoe. He's a Democrat from Salt Lake City. Represents District Twenty Four. Uh, has been on with us, Representative Briscoe. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for being the fourth estate. You're necessary, and I appreciate your efforts. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Earlier in the program, we talked with uh, Salt Lake Tribune reporter Leah Larson. We talked about water issues mostly, but some other interesting topics as well. And uh, we thank you for listening to Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. Coverage of the 2024 Utah session of the Utah Legislature comes from AARP, a nonpartisan organization that helps Utahns live their best lives through programs and advocacy work. For more information on volunteering, newsletters, and email alerts, visit aarp.org slash get involved and Planned Parenthood Association of Utah offering health care at eight health centers across the state, including Logan at 550 North Main and Ogden at 434 East, 5350 South Washington Terrace, along with education for Utahns of all ages. Information at ppau.org.